Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and Aaron Miller is my co-host. Uh, we took a break last week for the Thanksgiving holiday. Hopefully, if you're in the US, you got to enjoy a break too. If you're not, then apologies that we missed you for a week, but we're back again now uh, and hopefully should be on a regular schedule for the next couple of weeks at least before we take another break for Christmas. We have a few topics for you today. Uh, we're going to start off talking about uh, Clayton Christensen and his theory of disruptive innovation. It's been in the news again recently because Clayton Christensen uh, posted something of a sort of an update to his theory I think on the Harvard Business Review um, just talking about the ways in which his theory is being or, or some of the language associated with this theory he feels is being misappropriated so we'll talk about that to start things off our second topic will be our question of the week and that is uh, is Apple changing its reseller pricing strategy and obviously the hook here is the Thanksgiving sales period last week and early this week with uh, Black Friday and Cyber Monday some of the things that Apple seem to be doing differently, or rather some of the things that Apple resellers seem to be doing differently. So we'll talk about that as our second topic. And then our third topic will be uh, the departure of the head of Samsung's mobile business and his replacement with uh, a new leader for that business at Samsung. And and, uh, we'll talk more broadly about the current state of Samsung's mobile business as part of that conversation. So we'll kick off with this uh, Clayton Christensen discussion. And uh, uh, just as a reminder, Aaron, my co-host, is um, a business school professor. Um, he, he can explain more about what kind of business school professor he is um, in the sense that there are the more academic variety and then there are the sort of professional track uh, professors as well and he could talk about that but I, I wanted him to start out because he had some interesting thoughts about where he thinks all this is coming from uh, from Clayton Christensen's perspective Sure, so I am on the professional side as a business school faculty member um, what that means is I come because of my professional background as a full-time professor and not because I I have a PhD. I actually have a JD and a master's in public administration. So my background is in more in, um, my background is a lawyer in a former life, which we've talked about before in previous episodes. But um, that does make me an observer of business school academics. Um, and and a participant at times. I mean, I have you know worked on some academic publications with my colleagues and and had a few things published, but certainly not to the extent that my colleagues do because they they get stuff published as part of their as part of their um, expectations here um, in the business school. Publishing is just part of keeping your job. That is until you get tenure, but. It means that to be active as a professional, active as an academic, you have to be writing and publishing. And so I see a lot of that happening around me. And, and the, the truth is that the Harvard Business Review piece that Clayton Christensen is so much easier to understand when you understand how business academics works. I mean, how it is that, that, that theory building and, and academic publishing in the business space actually operates. And it involves a lot more precision about the meaning of words than people tend to use generally in, say, popular press books in the business space or in uh, business journalism. The, the words and terms have much more precise meaning. That's a really important part of academic uh, academia generally, but in business especially, um, because a lot of business publishing is is based on theory building in a way that's similar to other social science fields, where you sort of build up a theory that you think is descriptive of the world. And you part of theory building is testing its limits and, uh, and finding out ways that is connected to other theories. And the best, the best theory 
is well-defined, well-articulated, and well-bounded. Um, and, and then once you have that theory, then you can take this well-articulated, well-bounded um, theory and test it in the real world. And, and that's what, and what's happening in this article is Clayton Christensen and his co-authors are essentially saying that, that the popularization of disruptive innovation as a theory has been changing it, the way people talk about it so that it's no longer true to the academic theory that, that lies right. at its foundation. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, um, it, and I think that's what makes it hard because within academia, within business academics, um, this term disruptive innovation has a particular meaning. And so right. it doesn't seem that crazy for Clayton Christensen and his co-authors to claim that term, right? To lay claim on it, right? And so to say that a market is being dis- to say that a market is being disrupted by an innovator, it, to business academics is going to mean one thing, and to the rest of the world, to the rest of us, it's going to mean something else, right? And that that seems to be the key challenge here, right? Because he seems to be trying to lay claim to this term you know the full term being disruptive innovation but the problem is people very rarely use that full term right like they use the word disrupting disrupted disruptor um you know those sort of derivatives of it without using the full phrase and the challenge is of course that the word disrupt existed before clayton christian came along Um, along with innovation (laughs) along with innovation separately as well yes obviously um and so you know he's he's kind of you know put these two words together paired them and given that a specific meaning but the problem is that you know when people often appear to be talking about his theory when they talk about disruption and so on and yet they might not be and they might easily just be using the uh, the dictionary definition of the word disruption instead and and that seems to be the challenge here and when you and i were talking before we started recording you know i kind of referred to sort of kleenex and other or xerox or or even google for that matter you know these words that have a specific brand associated with them but become sort of generic um and that uh, we start to use to, to refer to all of some of these things such that the owner of the brand loses their ownership of the brand and, and the ability to capture value associated with that brand as well. Um, and it kind of feels like that's to some extent what's happened here with Clayton Christensen's theory is that disruptions started to be a, a word that's applied much more broadly than the limited and narrow way in which he defines disruptive innovation. And, and that seems to be what he's trying to claw back here a little bit is saying, look, you can you know, talk about Uber. Uber is very interesting. And Uber is the specific example he used in this new, new post on Harvard Business Review. But you know, it's not a disruptor in the sense of the, the theory first outlined in the innovator's dilemma 20 years ago, whenever it was. Right. No, that's exactly right. And, and it's interesting because, you know, there are a bunch of other phrases that have been used more liberally than the original um, creators of the theories uh, intended. I, I, one example is competitive advantage. Uh, this concept of a competitive advantage has much more particular meaning in business academia than it does in the way people use it generally. Um, another is core competency. Um, that's a that's like it's a much narrower term than people people recognize. Um, and uh, you know, I, I mean, as as an observer of business academia, right? I mean, because I'm here, as, I, I'm here, and I teach, and all my colleagues are publishing. But you know, this isn't. My full-time profession isn't publishing academic work in in in, in business. Um, you know, I, I can see why it matters a lot to them 
but I can also see why people take it and adapt it and apply it in their own way. And I think, I think the it, what complicates the problem that Clayton Christensen has isn't just that people are taking the word disruption to mean something else other than the way he intends it, or to be more precise, disruptive innovation. It, that's that's not the only problem because within business academia, I don't think he's got a risk of this theory of disruptive innovation being weakened or genericized, like in the way that clean X or Xerox have been. But what's interesting is that the people who are genericizing the term in the popular press are still crediting Clayton Christensen for it. So there's this, they're, they're presenting an altered, watered-down, or misapplied right. version, but they're still saying, and Clayton Christensen is the guy who came up with this idea. Mm. And they're giving him credit for a version of it that isn't what he's claimed. Right, right. And that, that kind of brings us on to another point, which is what I wanted to discuss as well, which is, you know, does this theory really apply to a lot of the stuff that, for example, we talk about on this podcast, which tends to be mostly consumer technology? Um, we talk about Apple quite a bit specifically, but we talk about other con- technology companies too. You know, to what extent does this theory work? Um, and he's famously, uh, you know, predicted when the iPhone first launched that it would fail um, and that Nokia would kind of be the strong competitor that would continue to win out. You know, even since then, He's continued to predict that the iPhone, by virtue of being kind of this closed ecosystem rather than a, a modular approach, would fail. Um, you know, he's kind of stuck to his guns, even though the reasoning perhaps has changed a little bit over the years. Um, and it's interesting, you know, about, when is it now, maybe a year ago, maybe a little bit longer, there was an article that came out that basically said, you know, this whole theory is bunk, basically, that it doesn't apply, that it's wrong in all these different ways and so on. And that got a lot of attention at the time. And I, I you know, we have a couple of personal connections to Clayton Christensen. We used to live in the same town. Um, he and I once packed somebody's moving truck together. Um, you know, I don't know him super well by any means, but we have a, a number of uh, friends in common. And so, you know, I heard through those people that he was really upset by that article at the time, not least because it really focused on the original book and didn't really take into account all the work that he's done since then, to your point in terms of evolving the theory and, and, and making sure it's, it remains relevant and, and testing the limits and so on. But, um, you know, certainly the iPhone is one thing that he, he seems to have consistently got wrong. Um, and, and the question is just, you know, does this theory even apply at all in the market that we tend to talk about? Yeah. I, I mean, the, the question generally, does disruptive innovation, as he's described it, meaning you know, low-cost foothold entries into a market, right? Because that's what it essentially he describes is that is that the market dominators tend to focus on existing customers, and as a result, they produce higher-cost products than what low mar- low-end customers are willing to buy. And right. then low-end customers come in, or sorry, low-end uh, disruptors, disruptors come in, and they get what he calls a low-cost foothold. Mm-hmm. And then they start adding in features and build their way up to the mainstream of the market. Right. Does, so they start out by targeting yeah. the customers that the, the incumbent doesn't particularly care about. But then they, they use that as a sort of a foundation for building something that ends up being competitive further up the stack as well. Exactly. And so the, the question is, does that exist in the tech, center, tech sector? I think absolutely. Mm-hmm. Is it an unavoidable outcome for every participant, sort of like gravity? I don't know. I have a hard time seeing that. I, I, mean, yeah. I mean, the truth is, you know, we and it may be that it's still there like gravity. But in addition to gravity, we have airplanes 
right? And all kinds of other mm -hmm. things that help us sort of defy gravity. And it may be the right. case that every time we see something that seems to defy the theory, there are there are counter moving forces, right, that are that are operating against the theory. Um, just like an airfoil does, you know, gets this ridiculously right. heavy plane up into the air. Um, that may be the way that we look at it too. From an academic's perspective, that's where stuff gets really hard. I mean, that's where, mm. I mean, if you're going to be scientific about it, um, then it's, it's so hard to, to, to measure accurately when there's so many competing variables. This is actually what makes, I think, business academia especially challenging. Mm -hmm. it, it, the argument, you know, made against the original Innovator's Dilemma book is that the the foundational study, the one that Clayton Christensen did for his PhD on the hard drive industry, is is not broadly applicable enough. Now, now, disruptive innovation as a theory has been tested over, you know, two dozen or more other industries. And the theory seems to hold up in a bunch of other industries, but again, that's right. not exhaustive either. And uh, and the the cases there's not as much incentive for proving a theory wrong um, among academics, and so sure. so sure. an absence of studies showing where disruptive innovation hasn't applied. You don't shouldn't shouldn't be taken as evidence that it always does apply. Exactly, it's it's harder right. to build a reputation just going around knocking down everybody else's work. Right. right. And academics tend to prefer building up theories that they can lay claim on themselves rather than sure. just going around yeah, yeah. knocking down everybody yeah. else's. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think one area where the theory seems to fall down is in industries where um, it's not just about features. And I think, you know, this is where it, it, it's it and to be honest, a lot of other people in theory seem to fall down when it comes to Apple specifically is, you know, Apple isn't just about features. It's not about a checklist of features and you right. say, well, we have these and the other guy doesn't and that's why we win. Right. You know, it's about tight integration of a number of different features and elements of things. It's about a brand and, you know, a certain set of values and a culture and so on that go with Apple products. And I think it's that part of it that the theory seems to completely ignore. I think that's one reason why it keeps getting... Apple and the iPhone wrong is that it ignores that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, in hard drives and steel mills, you know, a lot of the other stuff that the, the, the original theory was based on and, and founded on, you know, a lot of these things have in, in common the fact that they are, you know, very measurable products. You know, either this one is or isn't better than this other one for right. this specific purpose that it's intended for. Uh, and therefore, you can evaluate it in that very kind of cold-blooded sort of um, objective way. And I feel like the problem with consumer technology is that you can't do that with these products in the same way. That there's all this intangible stuff. There's a lot of stuff you can't easily measure or put down on paper that matters a great deal to people when they're buying these products. I think that's exactly right. In fact, I think it goes to one of my complaints with disruptive innovation as a theory is that it. Uh, you're right, it only works in... It only works where the price to quality spectrum is clean and simple and clear. Right. Where right. what I'm giving up is cash, and what they're giving me back is a product of a certain quality. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, in consumer electronics, I pay far more than just cash for the consumer electronics or platforms or software products or services that I use. I pay in time. I pay in frustration or absence of frustration. Right. Right. I, I pay in all kinds of other ways in addition to cash. I pay in information about me. 
that goes out to other people, like right. advertisers. And there are all kinds of things I put into this product or have to give up for this product that are more than just cash. Right. And that makes it a lot muddier. That makes it a lot less clear to figure out what the true price is of all these things. And it's harder to identify what a low-cost foothold market participant actually is. Right. I mean, and that's where the example that he gives of Uber is troubling for me because, you know, he makes the point that Uber is not exactly a, a low-cost entrant. And that's true. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't vastly undercut taxi services on price. But you have to think about all the other things that people pay with when it comes to getting a ride from one place to another. Right. Um, one is convenience, right? I mean, having to mm -hmm. look up the, the the phone number for a particular cab company. Another is 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 time because they have to sit around and wait for a cab to be available to come to them if they focus on just one vendor. Uber saves people a bunch of it saves people now not cash but it saves people costs in terms of convenience and time, and I think that's had a lot to do with its success because that lowers the price, not the price cash wise but the price in terms of convenience and time, that uh, that that people needing a ride from one place to another have to pay, and right. so the more of this you add in, the more it complicates the picture and it's really I think it, it doesn't necessarily invalidate the theory but it makes the mm -hmm. theory a lot harder to prove and measure. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's right. And I, I think we'll come back to it a little bit when we talk about Samsung Mobile later on. But uh, yeah, fascinating theory. I'm sure we'll be still discussing the theory, you know, 10, 20 years from now. Oh, even. yeah. Uh, it's going to stick around. Our, for a long our grandkids time. will talk about it in business school still. I, I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I really do think it's that big of a deal, and I think it will yeah, stick yeah. around for a long time. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, you know, on a, on a personal level, I, I have enormous amounts of respect for Clayton Christensen, both, you know, academically as, as a sort of a theorist and somebody who's come up with this amazing idea, but as a human being as well, he's a very admirable person. Um, so let's move on to our question of the week. And uh, Aaron, you've been doing the research this week, so um, you'll be doing the bulk of the talking here. But uh, the question is, is Apple changing its reseller pricing strategy? And again, the, the kind of hook for this conversation is, we just passed the Thanksgiving shopping season here in the U.S. with Black Friday, which was last Friday, Cyber Monday, uh, which was this Monday, and, and everything in between, including Thanksgiving Day, which is becoming an increasingly important shopping day, at least online as well. So um, it seemed as if there might be some changes this year around or might have been some changes this year around uh, in terms of how Apple and, and especially some of its resellers are pricing its products. So that's the conversation we're going to have today. And I think the best place to start is if we... Uh, kick off with a discussion of how Apple has priced things and, and allowed its resellers to price things in the past. So do you want to talk us through that a little bit to start off with? Sure. I, I mean, going way back in time, like pre, you know, Steve, pre, 90, pre 1997, like before Steve Jobs came back, Apple had settled into um, a way of selling its products and that was through resellers. Um, Apple never sold really anything directly. There did come a point where they launched on a web store, but it wasn't driving very much traffic. So Apple, in its relationships with its resellers, had adopted a very particular strategy, not used by a lot of other companies in the tech industry. And I think Apple did this because they recognized they had a really loyal customer base. And, and the way it worked was all the resellers, first of all, paid very high wholesale prices meaning that Apple didn't give them very steep discounts. Apple as a company, as a tech company, is known for having surprisingly high margins. Um, we, we talk about, in fact, you know, the, the stock watchers during every quarterly report keep an eye on Apple's margins. And a couple of years ago, Apple took a hit stock-wise because its margins seemed to be slipping. But 
Apple as a company is known for having really high margins, and part of the way they maintain this and have maintained this for decades is by having high wholesale prices for their resellers. They just don't share much of the margin that exists with. They don't share much of the of that margin with their resellers. Um, now that wouldn't necessarily stop a reseller from selling Apple equipment at a loss necessarily, um, but uh, the way Apple manages that is by entering into what are called minimum advertised pricing agreements with all of its resellers. So part of being an Apple reseller wasn't just paying these high wholesale prices, because why would you want to? you know, sell a product that has such a thin margin on it. Um, the way Apple made up for that was by saying, hey, if you will promise to keep your advertised prices for our products at this number, then we'll kick in an extra financial incentive. Um, and that extra financial incentive sort of made up for the high wholesale prices and in turn it also allowed Apple to keep the advertised pricing of their products the same across any reseller. Right. And so sometimes there was a little bit of wiggle room there, but I mean, you're talking about less than 5%. In fact, in many cases, it was like around 2%. And so okay. back in the days when people bought their Macs from local small retail shops or from catalogs, you know, you would see, a, you know, a $1,500 Mac discounted by, you know, $40. <laughs> kind of a thing. Right. So there really wasn't okay. much of a discount mm -hmm. to be shared there. And so what the resellers would do to be competitive and because they had these advertised minimum advertised pricing agreements or MAP agreements, what they would do is is bundle other products that they could get really cheap in with a Mac. And so if you mm -hmm. bought a Mac from a catalog, for example, back in the early 2000s, you probably also got a free printer with it, like a free low-end Epson inkjet printer. Or you maybe got Apple Care for three years bundled in or something like that. Um, and so there's a really long stretch of time where Apple um, sold through resellers. This is all the way from the late 80s on. They sold through resellers with high wholesale prices, MAP agreements, and the resellers to be competitive would bundle stuff so they could still stay true to their agreements with Apple about the advertised pricing. And so fast forward to, to the early 2000s and Apple starts opening its own retail stores. And this is where the resellers start getting angry, um, but that's not an essential part of our history. But anyway, Apple starts selling, it starts establishing this pretty powerful retail presence and uh, the result is Apple needs a lot fewer resellers to sell its products, especially the small mom and pop type that, that were right. dominant in the 90s. <clears throat> and so a bunch of these go out of business. And now the, the resellers that produce the most business for Apple are big shops like Best Buy, um, you know, uh, depending on the product, Target um, and Walmart. And so... So that, that landscape has changed dramatically during all that time period. Um, and, but during the 2000s, the best deal you could ever get on a Mac was probably either a refurbished model from Apple directly or an educational discount from Apple directly. And in fact, you almost never, in fact, pretty much never saw resellers going below the refurbished or academic pricing. Right, okay. So... When did all this start to change? I mean, does it just change this year or were there changes before that too? Well, it's hard to know for sure because the 
um, reseller agreements are bound are, are bound up in confidentiality agreements. And so a reseller isn't allowed to tell anybody about the wholesale pricing they get from Apple, about the details of the minimum advertised pricing that they've agreed to. So they can't they can't go into those details. But there were signs of a change back in 2012. Um, so almost exactly three years from now, Walmart was selling iPhones and the i the brand new iPhone five. And they offered a forty to sixty dollar or fifty to sixty dollar discount on iPhone models, and this is for entry level models. And back then, phones were still sold on contract, and so the entry level iPhone five, which was being sold for, I think their standard pricing was around one hundred ninety, like that, reflecting that tiny discount that you saw everywhere else, right. which shows still high wholesale prices. Um, they all of a sudden were selling them for around one hundred forty bucks. And uh, and they they were doing it for a limited time. It was just for a couple of weeks during the holiday shopping season. Um, but it was by far historically the steepest discount percentage wise that you could get on 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 Apple Tech. Uh, and it was really disruptive. In fact, Best Buy was also selling iPhones during that time period, and they had to match Walmart's pricing. Um, and the Wall Street Journal ended up reporting that. During that brief two-week period, uh, or however long it exactly was, I don't remember, but during that brief period, Best Buy ended up losing $65,000 in iPhone sales because they had to match this pricing that Walmart was putting in. Now, Walmart, it turns out, was just keeping low stock. <laughs> and so, right, they weren't so, actually selling that many. Yeah, they weren't selling that many, but they were getting people to come into the stores, uh, whereas Best Buy had plenty of stock and was selling all these phones at a, at a, at a substantial loss. Now, that, this was a big deal because this was the advertised price that Walmart was offering and Best Buy in response. And so this this seemed to defy minimum advertised pricing agreements that Apple seemed to have, although, like I said, we don't never know the details because of confidentiality agreements. But I remember the time that I was shocked because that was never a way that anybody could sell Apple stuff. And all of a sudden they were selling these iPhones at this super steep discount. Right, yeah, and Walmart's interesting because that's their their modus operandi has always been to kind of discount things more heavily. They buy in huge bulk and then they put huge pressure and, and exercise the leverage that they have over their suppliers to, to discount prices and to get better wholesale pricing on stuff. And I know that they've applied that same or attempted to apply that same kind of pressure to Apple as well. And Apple's like the only company in the world that won't bend to that kind of pressure with, with Walmart, with you know iPhones and so on. So it's interesting that there was that wiggle room or they felt there was that wiggle room even back in 2012 when I, I'm fairly sure that Apple wasn't giving them a lot of leeway to do that kind of stuff. So um, what what was different this year? I mean, what do you take kind of what, what did you see in terms of trends and, and changes with Black Friday and so on this time around? Well, that was the amazing thing is more than any other Black Friday that I can remember, pretty much every Apple product, with one exception, saw steep discounts. In some cases, up to like fifteen or twenty percent off, um, or actually twenty five percent off if you look at uh, Apple watches. And that's what's surprising because, you know, historically there you could get older models that are no longer, you know, manufactured by Apple, like, say, previous generation laptops or something like that or previous generation iPhones. You used to be able to get those, you know, discounted and retailers seem to have more room in the way that they could price those and advertise the pricing to those. But um, what was interesting this time around is that pretty much every, you know, 
current version of of what Apple sells went on sale for cheap. I mean, so to to start, you know, if you look at uh, iPads, for example, the iPad Air two. Now, granted, that's a two year old iPad. That's a year over a year old now as an iPad, but it's still the most current version of the iPad that you can buy. Um, some of those prices were as high as one hundred fifty dollars off. Um, for the iPad Mini 4, so this is the brand new iPad Mini that Apple announced a couple months ago, you could get those at a discount of up to $100, which is a huge amount um, for, for iPads. In fact, those are the steepest discounts that I can ever remember, although temporary because they're just tied to Black Friday and the weekend. But, right. but they're the steepest discounts that I can remember on iPads during this sale season. Um, the, so the same goes for all their computer, for all the Mac lines. Um, in fact, the most surprising one to me was the deals on the Mac, on the Retina MacBook, which is still, you know, despite being relatively underpowered compared to Apple's other Macs, it's still the new cool one. And right. uh, and some of the prices there by Best Buy and B and H Photos dropped by as much as two hundred dollars and that's for a computer that at the high end is fifteen hundred dollars and so so this is a lot of money off by the way i'm pulling all these uh, mac rumors did an awesome black friday deals summary and that's where i'm drawing a lot of these details but but uh the most surprising ones to me the most surprising discounts to me were with the watch and the and the apple tv now with the watch um uh you could get a watch for as much as fifty to one hundred dollars off, depending on which model you bought, the size and the and whether or not it was a sport or the stainless steel watch. But uh, but th- I mean that's that's a pretty huge discount, um, and, and primarily that was happening at Best Buy and Target. But it, it is the kind of pricing that sh- that seems to eliminate the existence of a minimum advertised pricing agreement. Um, Were these straight discounts? I mean, that's one thing that's worth talking about. Were they straight discounts in most cases, or was this a kind of buy this product and get an offsetting gift card or something? Yeah, so at Best Buy, they were straight discounts. Um, At Target, they were um, gift cards, um, Mm -hmm. but but still, that's a pretty huge discount on the watch. Um, the, The other thing that surprised me was that there were any discounts whatsoever on the absolutely brand new Apple TV. We're talking about the new one. you know, that supports tvOS. And what happened during that time is there were some people, some group, some places, and I couldn't find the details, I don't remember where I read it, but there were some places throwing in a free newest generation Apple TV with the purchase of a Mac. And then well, the other, yeah, yeah which yeah. obviously is an awesome deal. And then the other thing that was surprising is that Target somehow got away with having the, the brand new Apple TV be a doorbuster deal which mm. meant you had to show up really early and they had limited stock, oh, right, yeah. but still they were offering 25% off Apple TVs if you were able to get a doorbuster deal on it. Right, okay. Huh. And so, so the, the watch one is the more interesting one to me out of all these discounts because this is this is Apple's brand new, you know, supposedly exciting product. And for retailers to offer the discounts that they did just was not anything I think we'd seen before. Right. So what do you take away from all of this? I mean, what does this sort of suggest about kind of what might be changing in Apple? And, and I guess the other question is, you know, did we see the same kind of discounting in Apple stores too? And what does that, does that suggest that, you know, struggling to get these things out of the door and trying to boost sales? Or is there something different going on? Here? Yeah. Well, that was, the other, that was the other interesting thing is that Apple, for the first time in years, 
didn't have any Black Friday deals of its own, either online or in the app retail stores. And, uh, you know, the, I, I suspect that has something to do with Angela Aarons. Um, the truth is, you know, in recent a recent day, uh, Apple's, Apple's Black Friday deals that they offer themselves were never fantastic. In fact, last year, basically all you got were some iTunes gift card. You know, you got an iTunes gift card with whatever you bought, and the amount varied depending on the price of the thing that you purchased. But but they weren't exactly huge discounts, and the discounts came in the in the form of iTunes credit. And so um, it's interesting this year that they didn't do any discounts of their own. Just They just had no Black Friday sale whatsoever. I, I suspect Angela Aarons had a lot to do with that also in part just because of her background, which is always upscale retail. You know, the kind of business and products that don't sell based on sales that they have, right. but yeah. they sell based mm-hmm. on the quality of the brand. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing about the Apple brand in general, isn't it? You know, they don't need to discount most right. of their products to get people to buy them. You know, that isn't, people aren't buying them because they're a good deal. They're buying them because they really want the product and they think it's worth whatever the price currently is. That's right. And, and so, in fact, Apple's kind of never done that. Um, I think the thing that's surprising now is, and, and I ran into a, a conversation on a related article where somebody essentially said that Apple has ditched its minimum advertised pricing agreements. I, I, I think that's probably true. The evidence seems to point to the fact that Apple doesn't have these MAP agreements anymore. They just charge mm. the high wholesale prices and leave it at that. Right. Uh, I think the reason they can do that now has everything to do with their Apple's strong retail presence with its own stores. Um, mm. You know, before, if you didn't have the MAP agreements, what it meant was somebody huge like Walmart, and you kind of hinted at this before, somebody big like Walmart could come in and you know, buy a bunch of these things, get get Walmart known as the place to go get good deals on Apple stuff, and then Walmart would have all this bargaining power with Apple as a result right. of this market position that they've gained. Um, mm-hmm. And this is actually there's a great article about from it's from about three years ago in MacWorld by Marco Tabini that kind of describes how Apple has always sold products in the past. Um, an update to the article, I think, is in order because of these changes. But it feels like now Apple, because of its strong retail presence, isn't scared about any one reseller sort of controlling the market on on Apple products. And so I, you know, I think if ever historically there was a threat for that, it would have been from somebody like Best Buy. Obviously, things right. have really changed. And so I think Apple doesn't have to worry about that, and they can just continue to charge high wholesale prices, recognizing that nobody could sell those at a loss for a long enough period to put Apple's retail stores in a bad spot. Yeah, it's fascinating to see Best Buy 2 installing you know, Apple stores within a store now, often staffed by Apple employees, certainly employees that are trained by Apple right. trainers. Um, you know, so they've kind of embraced that third-party retail, especially in Best Buy, actually, but uh, to some extent, other retailers as well. You know, it happened with the Apple Watch specifically right. over the last few months too. But you know, they, they're really using Best Buy as kind of an extension of the Apple retail store footprint as well. So it's definitely not appearing to be threatened by them, and instead, kind of embracing that channel. Yeah, I think also what this means is that any Apple resellers are going to have to figure out other ways to make money off of Apple customers. Right. Yeah. Um, they're not going to have minimum advertised purchasing agreements to subsidize their margins. I, I, I think the reason Best Buy can keep doing it, for example, is that they their sales model is about upselling. 
and right. you know upselling on warranty on, on extended warranties or on additional products and i think there's i think that's why best buy is willing to stay in business with apple uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the apple watch at target stores um and mm-hmm. to see how long that lasts there was a time when yeah. um target sold the ipod and then got rid of it because they just couldn't make enough money off of it and I, right. i'm curious to see how it goes with the apple watch yeah, um, I think the other interesting thing uh, that happened with all the holiday pricing and and it is it, is it says something interesting about the iPad Pro because the iPad Pro didn't get any discounts anywhere and not that I I saw and I did look for them um, as part of my research and I didn't see anybody discounting iPad Pros and what's interesting about the iPad Pro not getting discounts is it seems to imply. A, it's a new, fresh product, and so there's not an incentive for retailers to discount it because the people coming to buy them are already willing to pay full price. But also, B, it seems to imply that they're not expecting that many people to come buy them generally, um, you know, right. to, to offer a discount. Um, I know it seems like they're just not expecting that many customers to be drawn in by iPad Pro discounts right now. Right. That's a really premium product. I mean, you know, you're going to be spending... Right. You know, I can't remember what the starting point is. Is it seven, eight hundred dollars off the top of my head? Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, it goes up from there. Obviously, you know, this isn't the kind of product that's going to be, you know, attracting a person who's looking for a deal. Um, you know, this is something that you're going to have to think long and hard about buying in the first place, and, and probably therefore not be too swayed by fifty or a hundred dollar discount on it. Yeah. Um, although it's interesting because that didn't stop you know all these companies from offering similar uh, huge discounts on Macs that are priced higher. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do agree, though. I think the people that are buying iPad Pros right now are just, they're willing to pay full price. Right. And right. so yeah, there's so. not much of an incentive to offer a discount that leads to a loss. So Yeah, I wonder, too, if Apple's kind of holding off on really trying to drive sales of the iPad Pro until they have the accessories in stock. Mm. Because both the pencil and the smart keyboard have been very hard to find. Yeah. And if you, you know, iPad Pros are in stock, but the accessories haven't been and I think you know there's there's little point in driving huge traffic to stores if people are only going to be disappointed by the fact that they can't get these kind of signature accessories that go with it yeah I I think the way this would be interesting to watch in the future is that I think it's putting even greater pressure on small retailers Mm -hmm. um simply mac uh or others like them where they um, you know, there are these small shops. I don't think that they're going to be able to keep up with Target or Best Buy or Walmart because those companies can take a short-term loss on selling a, a you know a, a flagship Apple product um, because they make it up in other ways. But these right. small retailers don't have that luxury, and so what's going to be interesting is that small retailers of Apple gear have you know. I mean, a lot of them have died off because of Apple stores. And now that it appears that minimum advertising pricing agreements are out the window, I think they have even less ground to compete. Um, and so really the only space where I think they can be competitive is in service industry, you know, is, is servicing Apple products in places where Apple stores haven't yet arrived. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Well, let's wrap up that topic there. But thanks for doing the research on that this week. Um, we'll wrap up with our final topic, which is um, the replacement of the head of the Samsung mobile business, J.K. Shin, by a new leader of that business. Um, this obviously follows several years in which the mobile business at Samsung has been struggling somewhat. It was widely anticipated. Samsung tends to make these changes towards the end of the year. Um, so we kind of knew this was probably coming. 
Um, but we just wanted to kind of talk about that, and it's interesting, particularly in the context of what we were talking about earlier with Clayton Christensen uh, and some of his theories, because I actually think a lot of them are, are somewhat applicable, actually, to Samsung, um, even though they don't seem to be to, to Apple and the iPhone specifically. Um, you know, one reason for saying that is just, you know, Samsung's mobile business faces a, two really big threats right now. And one is that at the high end, Apple finally decided to do larger phones a year ago um, and, you know, as such took away one of the big reasons for people to buy an Android device rather than an iPhone. Um, and it's seen a huge sales as a result of that, especially in Asia where people already knew they wanted those larger phones. And I think increasingly in other markets where people are discovering that they quite like them there too. Um, the other thing is obviously low-end disruption, and I think that's where Christensen's theories really are very relevant to Samsung, which is that as an Android device, Samsung's are very good, but increasingly you're getting these Chinese manufactured devices uh, from Chinese vendors that are uh, very nearly as good, if not actually as good, and yet priced significantly lower. They don't have all the bells and whistles of the Samsung devices, but that again is the kind of classic Clayton Christensen low-end disruption model where you, you don't have all the features, you just have the basics that people are looking for and you probably sell them at a lower price because you don't have to have all the marketing spend, you don't have to have all the R&D spend that goes into all the fancy features. Um, and, and that's the other threat that Samsung's been facing. And so, you know, that's kind of the, the world in which Samsung finds itself in its mobile business right now. And, and it's really struggled for the last few years as a result of that. Uh, Aaron, any kind of initial thoughts on all this? Yeah, I do think there's a funny irony in the fact that that the company that Clayton Christensen pegged to disrupt Apple from the low end is the company now being disrupted from the low end. Right. <laughs> so yep. there's, there's something really funny about that. And I think it shows that there's a lot more to, you know, like we were talking about earlier, I think this is proof of the, of the idea that there's a lot more to consumer electronics than just price. Um, where, you know, if you're within, if you're, if you're an Android user and you're within the Android ecosystem, that's where low pricing makes sense. What's, you know, what's great for Apple is that if you're in the Apple ecosystem, there are no low end competitors selling iOS devices. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's, uh, you know, I think that's a, a moat that Apple has built up around its customers that, you know, right. they, there's nobody else selling what they sell. Whereas in the case of Android, you know, these low end Chinese manufacturers can, can, you know, they can steal away all these customers from Samsung. I, I also think that what's interesting is that Mr. Ko, um, who, you know, is taking over there has a strong background in software. Um, he's the guy who's been pushing Tizen, and and uh, he's the one who sort of pi or uh, you know headed up the Samsung Pay service. Um, he seems to be putting it, like his background seems to be in differentiation through software, and right. so I won't be surprised if we see that being a, an even stronger theme in the way Samsung tries to differentiate its mobile phones is more through software and not just UI kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but more core sort of software services and features. Yeah, I'm intrigued by that. I mean, it's not like they haven't tried over the last several years. They've had, you know, a whole variety of things. And some of them were just UI stuff like you were just talking about. But, you know, they had milk music and milk video, neither of which have done well. Um, you know, they've had a whole variety of other things. They've actually started scaling back on some of that stuff over the last year or two because I think they recognize it wasn't that successful. Yeah. And I think, you know, some of the challenge that they face there is that they're fundamentally not a software company. It's Samsung Electronics. That's what they do super well is electronic goods and um, the software. They've obviously, you know, in the smartphone world, 
almost exclusively over the last couple of years used Android as the operating system and, and essentially the Google apps and then various sort of fairly similar Samsung apps on top of that. Um, you know, and they really don't have the DNA to do software. And so I'm really curious to see if that, if that changes, if they start hiring differently, if they make an acquisition here or there to try to change that, um, because they really haven't been successful uh, in building their own software so far. And, you know, Tizen's interesting, but it hasn't gone anywhere. They've used it in, in some wearables. They've launched one or two very low-end smartphones. But, you know, trying to launch a new... Uh, operating system in the mobile world at this point is extremely challenging. You know, just ask Microsoft how that's going for them. Um, you know, it's really struggled over the last several years doing that. The other thing that I think is interesting is, you know, ultimately I'm not sure there's a lot Samsung can do to turn its business around um, at this point in mobile. It's not terrible business. It's actually more profitable than all the other Android vendors put together. Um, but it's obviously a shadow of its former self. And, uh, you know, it's actually been recovering a little bit in terms of shipment and revenue growth over the last year. The nadir was about a year ago in Q3 2014. That's kind of the low point for most of the metrics for Samsung Mobile. Uh, at the same time, though, Samsung Electronics uh, has another huge business in semiconductors, which is doing really well. Um, and I think, you know, the, the key for them is, to, is not to abandon the mobile business anytime soon, but to really shift the focus to semiconductors and see how they can continue to grow that business because it's growing fast, it's very profitable for them at the moment, doesn't face the same kind of existential threats that the mobile business does. And so, you know, I, I'm not envious of, the, of, of Mr. Ko um, taking, taking over this business because I think it's a really hard job to take on. I think it's something of a poison chalice here where I'm not sure there's a lot of ways that it can go right. There are still ways that it can go wrong, of course. But, uh, you know, I think it's going to be a tough thing to do and this is where our episode comes full circle <laughs> because right. i mean what you just said about how samsung may not be able to improve its fortunes here is is essentially the prediction of the disruptive innovation theory because these higher end you know these sort of market dominant players in a given market in this case we're talking about android as a market you know, his point is, is that what Samsung has done or what anybody like Samsung would have done in this space was was the rational strategy, but also the losing one at the same time, right? Recognizing that it has its sort of core customer base and, and making those customers happier with newer, better products is, is what seems to make sense rather than going on the other end, you know, on the low end of the scale. And... Uh, and because Samsung focused that way, which, you know, from a business perspective, you would argue was a rational approach, is mm. the same one that's made their, that sort of sealed their fate here. And, right. uh, and, and you know, what, and that's what sort of created so much room. And what Samsung didn't do, and this is what Clayton Christensen would have recommended, is that they would have started a whole separate mobile division specifically for low end that operated on its mm -hmm. own. Yeah. And yeah. and that, you know, even operated under its own brand that essentially was competing with all the other low ends on their terms, but but mm -hmm. keeping the other the you know, the main flagship version of Samsung up to keep all of its existing customers happy. And they didn't do that. I, I doubt they'll do that, but who knows? Um, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, staying true to Clayton Christensen's theory, it, it's it's funny how it's it's played out pretty dang well right here. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, let's, let's uh, finish that discussion there. Um, the last thing we need to do is our weekly pick for the week. It's my turn this time around. Um, and what I want to recommend is actually a handful of 
apps for the new Apple TV for families. And so, um, you know, one of the things that the new Apple TV, you know, does that the other one didn't is games. And, uh, you know, we've, we've had an Apple TV in our house for about a month now, I guess, and uh, been playing a fair amount of games on it. And there certainly are plenty of games that you can play by yourself, and some of those are really, really fun. But what I wanted to focus on was uh, four of them that, that are really quite fun to play, either play as a family or to, you know, watch somebody else playing and, and kind of take it in turns. And, and so the four I wanted to recommend, two of them are ones that were actually demoed at the launch event. One is Crossy Road, which is extremely simple. Like, my four-year-old can play it with no problems at all. Um, but it's really fun to play with two players because you've got the usual challenges of the game of trying to cross this road with busy traffic, but you've got the added dimension of you can push each other in front of cars and trains <laughs> and things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, our four-year-old's favorite thing is not to play it, but to watch other people play it. And he just laughs and laughs and laughs when they do it because it's just, it's, you know, people constantly getting run over and then you're trying to, you know, compete with each other at the same time. Anyway, good fun. Uh, Beat Sports was another one that was demoed at the uh, the launch event, and we've played that a little bit in multiplayer mode. But again, we've mostly been taking it in turns with that one, and there's it's quite fun because it has the same benefits as some of the early Wii games, where you know you actually get some physical exercise in the process of doing it. You don't have to. The gestures that you need to run it are actually pretty subtle, but you can you can do them big and and get some exercise in the process. But that's a really fun one. Um, we downloaded a new one a couple of days ago. It was a bowling game. I think it's called something like Bowling Super League or something like that. But that's quite fun, and that's a, a multiplayer game where you take it in turns to, to bowl. And then the last one is one that's been around for a long time on iOS devices uh, with AirPlay mode, but Sketch Party TV, which is a sort of Pictionary-style game, uh, but now exists as a, as a native app on the Apple TV where you can use a, an iPad or an iPhone as the controller for it and draw stuff on your device and it shows up on the screen and people have to guess what you're drawing and that's another really fun one we've been playing that for a while even before the new apple tv came out but it's actually better with the new apple tv um, but i recommend all of those if you have a new apple tv or think about getting one for christmas maybe um, download those four games uh, several of them are free um, some of them are paid for games and, and some of them have some in-app purchases and things but, but you can enjoy all of them pretty cheaply um, and they'll add a lot of value especially if you have young kids who like to, to play stuff and you like to spend time doing that together. This is perfect because my, my kids don't listen to the podcast so I can say that we're getting one of these for them for Christmas. <laughs> okay. So that was, that was a perfect yeah. topic. Good. Well, thanks for being with us as always. Um, we appreciate you uh, listening to the podcast. We'll put links. Uh, Aaron's mentioned a number of links, particularly in his, his middle segment there that we'll link to. Um, so you can go look those up and that will be on the website at podcast.beyonddevices. Again, we have a Twitter account, which is dedicated to just posting links to the podcast. And that's BDPcast. Uh, so go look that up on, on Twitter and give it a follow. Uh, again, leave us feedback on the website. Uh, leave a review on iTunes. Uh, those are very helpful to help other people discover these things. And if you want to give us feedback or, or suggestions for future questions of the week or anything, that would be great too. So thanks again for being with us and we'll talk to you again next week.